guys, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. And as you're sitting down, um, Mia, one of our kids who, one of the kids who was born early on at, at Redemption Church and um, who is a filmmaker, has made a, uh, a film for us to watch about our 20 years. So let's watch this together. Um, you're here because, number one, Redemption Church is turning 20 years old. We are 20 years old now. So we planted in 2003. By 2006, I have this document. We stopped counting. I can tell you the day we stopped counting. We started um, talking about no longer a church model, but about what is the church? What is the church and what is it for? We found a guy named Jurgen Moltmann. He said, the thing you gotta know is, we thought church was have a mission. Moltmann said, he said, the church doesn't have a mission. And they were kind of jarring words. There, there is this thing, the mission of God, the Missio Dei, that God has a mission, which is making all things new through Christ. And the mission has a church. And so we ditched our, our mission statement and started to really just think how can we be part of the mission of God we started to serve the poor and we started to put all our energies toward those on the margins man people left so fast like it was jarring we saw a homeless guy holding up a sign and he and she said I didn't notice but Sophia said Mom, is that, is that, she was like getting, you know, looking like this out there. Isn't that James <laughs> that goes to our church? <laughs> uh, when my dad passed away, uh, Tim called me that night when we were on the way home. I mean, it was the worst drive we've ever taken. When our son came out, we were told, cut him off until he repents, all kinds of things. And he was a huge leader in that church all through high school. And they went, um, so I was long gone, and Larry was still involved in youth stuff. I didn't want him to have to leave. You have no idea how important you, you were to the life of the church because we were so tired, and we were wondering if this would matter to anybody else than us. So, um, but eventually we decided we'd try to go somewhere, but I thought we'd probably never find somewhere that we could both find a place. Um, and beautifully, this has been that place for us. And I was like, oh my word, that is James. I was like, oh, that that is a good thing, you know, like this is a person that goes to our church. This is a friend of ours. This isn't some amorphous homeless guy, you know, or part of a group that we don't really are or don't feel connected to. And I remember him calling me and crying. And uh, he's like, remind me your dad's name. So when I tell God how pissed I am at him, I can use his name. I just remember that I needed that. But when you when you showed up and it mattered to you. It's, it was almost like, it felt like magic to us that we had built a place that made sense. Uh, but Redemption Church is a really powerful presence in our community and in people's lives. Without Redemption Church, many people I think would have given up. I can't tell you how many times people say to me something like, this is my last stop on the way out. Um, so to all of you, no matter when you came, I, I want to thank you and say well done. And so I just wanted everybody in the same room, if we could just stop and do nothing else except just say thank you and say well done. Um, 
so grateful to get to do this for you. I'm Taylor and my family and I have been going to Redemption for the last seven years and um, Tim just remember you asked me to do this uh, we he asked me to come up with a top 10 list for <laughs> Redemption Church so uh, my family and I we brainstormed and came up with some some things that I think make Redemption unique top 10 things that make Redemption Church unique Number 10, when deciding what to wear to church, you ask yourself questions like, is this t-shirt too fancy? <laughs> Nine, showing up to church on time means a soft 10.07-ish. <laughs> Eight, a moment of silent confession. More like a moment of every child three and under screaming their heads off. <laughs> Seven, sitting through one service in these chairs gives new meaning to the phrase suffering for Jesus. <laughs> Number six. You'd be embarrassed if someone found out you've still never read anything by Barbara Brown Taylor. <laughs> Number five, the budget for our parking lot and incense are about the same. Number four, our building is like a perimenopausal woman. It's either raging hot or so cold it freezes the pipes. Yeah. You guys know, you guys have the uh, just-in-case jackets that some of you guys wear. Speaking of which, uh, some might call the water dripping from the ceiling a hazard. We like to call it spontaneous baptism Sunday. Number two, some churches have smoke machines. 
we have a smoking section. <laughs> and the number one thing that makes Redemption unique, our office manager, Beth Price, runs an underground betting site for how many times Tim says ragamuffin each sermon. <laughs> This is your first time at Redemption Church. <laughs> like, this is going to be a strange experience. And um, though I think it's probably better if you just find this stuff out in the very beginning. Redemption is, there's like uh, an irreverence to our reverence. You know what I mean? And this is not, we're not like trying to be cool um, or hip. Like, I'm your pastor. <laughs> Cool and hip left the building like a long, long, long ago. But I do think something miraculous has happened and continues to happen in this place. You know, um, I checked this, this um, past week. 80% of church plants fail within the first five years. It's just not very good odds that something like this would happen. And um, so today, what we're going to do is I'm just going to tell you the story of how it happened. It's like story time with Pastor Tim. So buckle up. Um, it's a good story, um, at least the way I remember it. Um, a as we begin the story, I, I want to recognize just a few people who made a real difference. That Part of the footage you, you watched there was our staff and elders got together and put on just a thank you for our, for the pillars, our first members and core members. So if you know what the word pillar really means, because you were one, or were a core member with us that very first year at Meadow Lane Elementary, I want you to stand right now. Could we actually, could you flip the lights back on? If you were there in the very first year, stand up. Everybody take a look around. Rhino's standing too. Let's give them a hand. I see you guys. Stay standing. I want to point out Ryan Green, who is on drums today, and Todd played music that very first Sunday. They were in the band, and they were in the band every, every single Sunday for about three years with almost zero breaks, and they're still leading to this day. That's pretty cool. And all of these folks um, have played significant roles, some of them coming on staff, leaving staff, coming back on staff, all of them contributing in incredible ways. We just wanted to say thank you, man. I, I can't believe like, we did it. It, it worked. It, it lives. It survived. And there were times I know you had to wonder, but, but thank you. And also, my last thank you in the Pillar Core group is for Kristen, who never wanted to be a pastor's wife. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she, she, makes, she makes my whole world go, and I couldn't do my job without you, so thanks, honey. All right, you guys may be seated. I want you to raise your hand if you attended services at Prairie Trail um, Middle School, PRT. Raise your hand. That's, a, that's quite a few. 
Um, so remember how close together the seats were? It was a middle school. They put the seats so close together, we couldn't do communion for a long time because we were just like, there's no way to do it. You can't get out. That's when we started kind of filing by rows. It was an accident. How about if you remember Olathe Northwest High School in the main auditorium, if you came during that time? Okay, a few more. How about during, in the Flex Theater, if you remember that? A few more hands. Okay, how many of you didn't show up until like the first three or four years here at 515 South Ridge? So, so like maybe circa 2010 to 2015. Raise your hand if that was you. All right, excellent. Quite a few. Um, and then how about since like 2016 and then through the pandemic and the years after that? Raise your hand if you've come since then. Okay, nice. A lot of us, a lot of new folks. How, how about, I want you to, to, actually, I want you to stand if you are the brand new pastor of Redemption Church Espanol and just started coming in the last six months and you're named Jose Salas. Where's Jose? There he is. Woo! Yeah. Yeah, they've like doubled in size already. They, they really know what they're doing. Um, yeah, it's been weird. The last 20 years, we have been trying to cultivate a church where, as much as anything else, you don't have to pretend like you have it all together to come to church. And this is why we call ourselves a ragamuffin church. Beth may actually run a, a betting ring. <laughs> My favorite thing is that the people who watch online, it's the Redemption Church drinking game. Every time we say ragamuffin, you have to <laughs> take a drink. We don't want to, this is a, a huge thing. We, we don't want to have to come to church and hide our brokenness and pretend. And the reason that we don't is because we're being formed by this crazy story of a God who doesn't run from brokenness, but runs toward it and has this habit of just showing up in, in places where people feel empty and scared and broken and lost. And, and the really big twist in the story, and this is um, something I think even a lot, maybe most Christians in America overlook, is that when God shows up, it's not actually to sort of magically fix things. I mean, if we've learned anything this last summer study numbers, it's that God doesn't make a way around the wilderness. God makes a way through the wilderness, a way in the wilderness. And the reason is because God's trying to use the wilderness to transform us. God draws near to us in our emptiness to fill the empty and broken places with God's presence, most often in the form of another human being, right, who is God's hands and feet. And if we're part of a story that's learned to tell that, part of a community that's learned to tell that story, and we've worked also to cultivate an awareness, sensitivity to God and God's presence, then when we hit the brokenness of life or the world, something just wakes up within us, almost like a sixth sense. You know what I mean? And God seems very near, and we encounter this God who's near to the brokenhearted. And then the strangest thing happens, all, all the brokenness and pain of life and the failure and the loss, it's, it kind of saves us. It becomes for us, for our benefit. By the way, Barbara Brown Taylor said that. <laughs> Pain, like struggle, suffering, has this way of like prying from our fingers all the things we're afraid to let go of. 
exposing our illusions and the games we play, stripping away the things that are killing us, but we just don't want to let them go. And it's painful and disorienting, but it's transformational. It's liberating over time. And it's really quite something when it happens. It's rare and precious and beautiful, a life that has come through the wilderness. A person who's sort of walked through the valley of the shadow of the death and come out the other side just a little more alive, you know, a little more human, as human is meant to be. But this cannot happen if we play Christian, you know, or if the story that we tell about God is that God is here to magically fix stuff, and if God doesn't magically fix stuff, it's your fault. You're doing something wrong. If we hide the brokenness, push it underground, you know, and then live inauthentically, it won't happen. We have to somehow learn to see the truth, tell the truth about our lives. That's what it means to be a ragamuffin. Take a drink. I'm not sure if we knew this is what we were doing 30 years ago when we started, um, or 20. Sorry, I got ahead of myself, 20 years ago. We were planted by Heartland Community Church clear back when they were in Overland Park, 83rd and Lamar. We were basically asked to be a franchise Um, In fact, our original name was Heartland K-10. So we were to reproduce Heartland in the western suburbs and Lawrence. We actually had a place in Lawrence. So we held our very first service um, September 7th, 2003 in the gym at Meadow Lane Elementary School, which doubled as their lunchroom so the entire church smelled like beef and cheese. (laughs) That's why the incense. That's why we used incense. It was to cover the smell of lunch. Um, They had this big, you remember the milk cooler? They had this really old milk cooler that would kick on in the middle of the sermon and wake everybody up. And so we had to to unplug it because it really was loud and disturbing and it made a buzz through the sound system. It was so rinky-dink. And we had to unplug it and one day we forgot to plug it back in and left and all the milk spoiled and they still gave it to the kids the next day. We had a campus in Olathe, and then another one, we do the same service at night in Lawrence. We had an office in DeSoto, so hence it was Heartland K-10. By year three or four, we had, you know, 450, 500 people coming between the two campuses um, each week. And then a bunch of crazy things happened, not the least of which is the church that planted us left Overland Park and moved, like, just a couple of miles from where we were, um, which was pretty confusing. That's when we changed our name because this uh, real Heartland moved in, and we were like, we didn't change our name. So that's how we became Redemption Church. But it also started us asking this, this question, what is the church, and what's it for? And um, we started to realize, you know, we had a bunch of church models, um, leadership, marketing techniques, but no real understanding of what the church is and what it's for. And um, if our mother church could plant us and then move next door. We were like, I'm not sure they know either, so we need to figure this out. And we found our way to some really good guides. Mia talked about one of them, Jürgen Moltmann, in this. And and these guides began to shape our imagination. Folks like Dallas Willard, Stanley Hauerwas, Walter Brueggemann, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Barbara Brown Taylor, Marilyn Robinson, Eugene Peterson, and a bunch of others. And, And I say this because one of the biggest parts of our journey as a church has been a theological journey. 
It has been us trying to understand how to believe and, and what to believe and, and how to deconstruct some of the, the old stuff that we were clinging to. And as we dug first into the Gospels, one of the things we discovered was that Jesus was obsessed with the kingdom of God. It's all he talked about, the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God, the government of God. And his whole project was about helping people to encounter this new way to be human, a new way even to organize the world with God as our king and humanity doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, that's the prayer that he taught everybody to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we talked about the kingdom. It wasn't about like who's in and who's out. Usually he didn't use in and out. He used near and far. Are you near? Are you far from the kingdom? What's the trajectory of your life? Where, how are you kind of walking? And what is that doing to you? Where is it taking you? Where is it taking the world? And he, and he said over and over, the thing you need to realize is that God is not far off in some heavenly realm angry and withholding, waiting to, you know, pounce on us. God is here, right here, living in us, through us. The space is in between us, and that God's character is more like a father. This was a revolution. He was like, God is like a, like a good dad who puts up with all kinds of craziness from his children, Letting them wander, letting them make mistakes and fool around and, and longing for them always to just come back and return. And Jesus said, for as much as we got right about God, we, we really, the people of God had gotten this one thing wrong. God is not angry at humanity for being broken, not waiting to pounce if we step out of line. And the problem is those misconceptions have driven humanity into hiding. You know what I mean? It's just weighed down with all this guilt and shame and scarcity and fear of what God will do if God sees us or if other people who seem to have it together see us. And so we're afraid to come out and be in God's presence. We're like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes, afraid to show ourselves to God. Even religion this is part of his Christ project. Even religion had become this way of holding God at a safe distance. And so from the Gospels, um, we started to change what we thought about that. Then we moved to the Old Testament. And we learned that the wilderness um, that we've been talking about like all summer, really the last three summers, is a massive theme in Scripture. And the wilderness is not what we thought. It's not a place of punishment. It is a place of transformation. That in, in order to move people toward a new orientation in life, God often takes them through this season of disorientation through which God can form them and a, a new imagination in them for what it means to be the people of God. And so we began to, pretty early on, imagine ourselves as a bunch of ragamuffins wandering in the wilderness. Take a drink. A wilderness church, really. That's, that's, that's what we thought of ourselves as. Longing for this new imagination, longing for wisdom, for what it means to be human, um, for courage to tell the truth about our weakness, our brokenness, for strength to follow Jesus to the least of these, to live in solidarity with the outcasts and the marginalized, which came a little bit later. And as we began to embrace the way of Jesus and this idea of the wilderness, 
we quickly figured out that most people don't really want a God who appears in weakness. It's not what people want. And this was kind of a rude awakening. Most people, see if this checks out with you, most people want a God who comes in power and fixes stuff. That's what people want. A God who shows up and does what we, fixes our problems, does what we ask God to do. A God who also hates all the same people we hate, who makes sure that our guys end up on top, and who ultimately tells us that we are all right and righteous and good, right? And we had encountered a very different God whose power is made perfect in weakness and who inhabits the praise of a, of a broken people. A God who isn't trying to make sure his people end up on top, but a God who wants all humans to get to the bottom, to race to the bottom, and learn to give away their lives so that everyone can flourish and find wholeness and peace. And the whole reason we discovered that the church in general exists at all is to chase that vision with God, that mission. It's not even like the video says, it's not even our mission, it's God's mission. The church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. And the more we chase this, the more we realize that um, most of the people going to our church did not want this. And we just, I don't know how, we were so excited at what we were learning, we just missed it. And um, people left. What, what mostly people wanted is a, a, a provider of religious goods and services. A place to come each week and hear a comforting message about how they're right and everyone else is wrong. We want to read the Bible in such a way that it affirms all the decisions we've already made with our life instead of calling those things into question. And we had just come to meet a very different God, this God who was wild and out of control and just chased after the ragamuffins, a God who very slowly and patiently was calling our lives into question. And at as this started to happen, the scriptures just began to explode to us. They just, it's like they were alive, exposing all of these misconceptions and asking us to change. And yeah, it was painful in many ways um, to keep discovering new ways in which you've had it wrong. Is, it can be tiresome. But every time it happened, it's weird, we started to feel stronger once we had walked through it, more alive. The, the metaphor I, I um, love for this is that it's like ballast in a ship. You know, I'm talking about like the, ro the rocks in the bottom. Every time we discovered something we had wrong and let it go, it's like the weight of it went to the bottom of the ship as ballast and just kept, it, kept us a little more steady in the storm. And the more we embraced this path, the more people kept leaving the church. It was so confusing. I mean, we began to shrink. We spun off the church in Lawrence. They're, they are now Vintage Church, which is a great church in Lawrence, still surviving. Um, I think the low point was around 85 people. It was rough. And by this time, I was teaching every week, and I'd just stand up in front of everybody and say, nothing's wrong. I know it feels like something's wrong. Nothing's wrong. This is the wilderness. It's, this is normal. 
And we don't need to be afraid. All we need to do is just keep faithing it. Just keep showing up. Pray these prayers. Sing these songs. Read this scripture. Eat this bread. Drink this cup. And trust that God has us. That God is leading us in the wilderness. And um, then some really weird unplanned things happen. Jim and Jennifer Schmidt, who are not here, which really stinks. They're on vacation. Um, they had been serving homeless folks with uplift, taking food out to cam- homeless camps, and they started bringing homeless folks to church. And the only way I know to explain it is that I had always felt like, up until that point, this is probably about four or five years in, I always felt like something was wrong. Something was missing. And I couldn't even tell you what it was. The day the homeless folks showed up, it, that went away. And I don't, I don't even know why. But we finally felt like a church. It's like God brought a tent and started living at the center of our camp. Around that same time, Mandy was on staff doing compassion stuff, and she started a relationship with a Spanish-speaking congregation called Via de Esperanza. We started serving together and learning to see the world through their eyes and began to wake up to social injustice in our city, including issues around immigration. And so we started working for social justice together, embracing um, homeless folks, starting to embrace immigrants, but not as like our mission, who we're trying to fix, because it's not a God who just draws near to fix things. Um, We embrace them as our teachers, our disciplers, who can teach us a new way to see the world. And it wasn't wasn't that long before um, we learned that well, this, this is a pretty challenging way to live our lives. You know, I, this is one of those early lessons that has stuck. It's, it's that as affluent people, when, um, when you love your neighbor and your neighbor is struggling, like crashing, it feels like it's happening to you. And this is intended. It is happening to you. And what we found was we needed a deeper spirituality than what we had been given. Like just the daily quiet time didn't cut it. It just was not sustaining us in this. And it it just wasn't rich enough to, to sustain us through yet another funeral for one of our homeless members or yet another fight that we lose when facing the powers over issues of injustice. And so we sort of stumbled onto something that's called the wisdom tradition. All this is, is, you know, there's like, there's like this history of the church that we all know about the splits, the reformation, that kind of stuff. And it's, it's mostly just a bunch of powerful church leaders and denominations having fights and splitting. But kind of underneath that, like a shadow of that history is the wisdom tradition. And it's just this tradition of weirdo, uh, misfit ragamuffins who um, kind of cataloged their experience with this mysterious God who was thwarting the powers and that you can only really encounter this mysterious God if you enter the mystery. They call it the great cloud of unknowing. You have to go into the cloud and become dis- all disoriented. We're like, okay, that, that works. That, that describes what we're doing. And it requires you to let go of your certainty about all the things you say, I know about God. You just let them all go and let God start to mess with them. 
And they said, if you're going to do this, you're going to need a bunch of spiritual practices, things like fixed hour prayer, liturgy, um, the church calendar, fasting, tithing, Sabbath keeping, and, and just scores of other things. And as we embraced these practices, they started to sustain us, give us energy um, in what was sometimes painful work and sustaining especially our efforts toward mercy and justice. And this is, if you think about it, this is actually how our worship service developed over time. And when we started out, it was like four worship songs, a message, communion, benediction, that's it. There were no movements, like not, not like eight or ten people helping to lead worship. And so we just started to change to try to make our meetings, our worship, fit this new theological thing that was happening to us. So that's, that's why we sit in a circle now. Because one of the things we learned is we need each other. We see God through each other. So we always try to sit where we have to kind of see other people in our sight line. We made the, the band, instead of being out front, the band completes the circle, and the center of the circle is the altar with a cross and communion with the body and blood of Christ in this cross in, in the center. We took great pains. Like when we bought the building, we had to rip out a whole um, dais up here because we want the teachers always to stand on the same ground as the congregation. They're not above us. They're just one of us, the one called to, to learn and, and teach. We um, started doing silence. You know how rare silence is in churches? We start with it. it it's then, again, in prayers of the people, um, when we do confession, which confession isn't saying, this is what I did wrong, I did this, this, and this. Confession is just saying, this is where I am, God, right now. It's just telling the truth about our lives. We began reading scripture aloud and not explaining it. Just trusting that the Spirit is living in you. You can respond to the scripture. I don't need to tell you what to think. We just read it and say, thanks be to God. We pass the peace. We bless our children. This is a huge thing. Blessing our kids, telling them, you don't have a choice if you're a part of the people of God. You are. You're here. You belong to us. You can try to run away, but we'll find you or you'll come back. We study the Bible when, when we're preaching, we're, we're trying not to just reinforce our deeply held beliefs. We use the scripture over and against ourselves to call our lives into question. We follow the church calendar. Oh my gosh. Following the church calendar makes us um, tell the whole story of God every year because we're assigned the text. But it also syncs up our whole church. So from um, U18, from senior high, all the way down, even in here, we're all, for that part of the year, we're telling the same story every day. We're synced up. Um, and then we started studying the Old Testament about half of the year, trying to read the Bible Jesus read so that it could shape our imagination like it shaped his. And then we encounter Jesus, and it's, it, the layers of meaning just leap off the pages. And then the pinnacle of our worship changed to communion, to the Eucharist, where we all kind of symbolically receive Christ once again. And then we have this benediction where we're sent out to the world to be the hands and feet of Christ. And then we hang around and talk, sometimes for a long time, get to know each other. And this is, all oh, this is intentional. 
It's what we learned. It's like symbolically, each of it is some aspect of what it means to be a Christian. It's like, it's like that movie, Karate Kid, like the wax on, wax off, you know? We, we come to learn the motions, the movements of what it means to be a Christian, to, to practice them together, and then we're sent out to the, into the world, and when stuff happens, we know the motion, we know the movement. We, we can act as Jesus would act if he were in our shoes. As this was happening, the whole time we were also just longing for neighbors. You know, we had, all we had was a trailer. All our, we have church, and then everything went back in the trailer, and we kind of disappeared. We didn't have any neighbors. And we had learned from Walter Brueggemann that, that actually um, neighboring is inextricable from gospel. It's a good synonym for gospel, neighboring is. And so we were like, we got to have neighbors. We need a building. Came down to two options. There was this big box retail space on a busy highway. It was like, if you want to be a mega church, this is the buy, right? This is what you get. But it had no neighbors. And then there was this little church tucked away in a neighborhood where everyone who could leave had already left, including most of the churches. And, um, but there, there were neighbors. And most of them were immigrants. And it, it just, it didn't take long. I remember the meeting. We came together as elders and I was like, we're buying the big box, right? It was like this obvious choice. And it, it was just, very soon, and we're like, that's dumb. We need neighbors. We need neighbors. If we don't want to grow and be a big deal. We want to come alive. Let's go down here where everybody's leaving. And um, so get this. 45 families raised $1.1 million. How did that happen? We bought this place. We renovated it on a shoestring budget. We did a lot of the work ourselves good five or six of us went to the emergency room over the course of a few days, <laughs> including me. Yeah, the, I, I always joke that in the first uh, 10 years of Redemption Church, the most common question asked was, hey, you're bleeding. Did you know you're bleeding? <laughs> it was kind of like that. So we came to this place, and then, then, the, the miracles started happening. A bunch of other ragamuffins started to show up at our doorstep from out of nowhere with tears in their eyes. And the children of immigrants from the neighborhood started coming to the youth group because they trusted us. Refugees from fundamentalism showed up and we realized, oh, all the pain, all the pain we went through it was for this, so we know how to be with them. He prepared us to offer them a place to heal and grow and ask all their questions and not be afraid and to stop hiding and be themselves. People who were longing for something deeper, a deeper kind of spirituality showed up and we could share all these new habits, rhythms, and practices that we had learned and we didn't even know, really didn't set out to do it. But that began to cultivate in them and in us this sensitivity to the God who comes in weakness. Mostly we realized that we had become a, a place where people could just come and tell the truth about their lives, share their doubts and fears and struggles and failures and stop pretending and, and leave, leave behind the, the hypocrite thing 
don't live inauthentically. It became a place like deconstructors have showed up, especially in the last five years. People just in the middle of it, like I said, saying this is my last stop. If this doesn't work, I'm done. And then a couple years later, it's very different. They're like, I see it, the church. I love the church. And it became a place to worship together without fear. And it seems like more and more people show up every week. It's almost like it's weird being a pastor of a ragamuffin church because it feels like you're always watching the prodigal son story happen in real time, like all over the place. It's a bunch of strugglers and prodigals finally remembering where home is. You know, that's the whole reason Jesus told that story was teaching his guys that God's a loving father and his children wander and make mistakes. And he lets them wander, hoping they'll learn and change and grow and find wisdom and peace. But God's not angry with this. Just God's just waiting for us to return, loving us, drawing us. And, and God is a God of endless second chances. Hear me. Endless second chances. That's what fathers are like. And we've been told a lot of things about God, many of us who grew up in church, that made us afraid of God, ashamed of ourselves. you know, that focused on outward behaviors, don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do, and tons of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame, guilt and shame. We heard that over and over. And then hiding. And what we... What we came to, in this sort of, I didn't make this up. I, I kept hearing this from people in the church and then kind of washed it through scriptures and theology to where I believe it, down to my toes. It really, um, and I think this is something that comes from redemption, and I have not found it most other places. It, it's this idea that the God that's, that Jesus called Father is always really only saying one thing. And all he's saying is, be, exist. I want you to be. I want you to exist in the world. And not just exist, I want you to exist as yourself, authentically, warts and all. And in that, to be, to be loved. And not just to be and exist as yourself, but to find in that and in relationships wholeness and peace and flourishing. The, the Jewish people call it shalom, peace. Everything in its proper place, doing what it was intended to do, thereby all of it relating rightly to everything else and flourishing and finding wholeness. And what really stands at the center of it for us um, at Redemption, what's I think so clearly revealed in Cross and Resurrection is that a huge part of why humanity and even the American church keeps missing it, keeps missing God, you could say, is that we just keep looking for a God who shows up in power to fix things. We want a God, we want a leader who looks like the leaders of the world, you know? Powerful people, presidents, kings, um, generals, CEOs. We want a God who shows up and defeats our enemies and eliminates our problems. 
But the cross tells us that, that God, when God shows up in the world, God looks like this. Like weakness. And it has to be this way. Or God would just, you know, simply overwhelm us. All of God in one place and one time would just, would just shut us down. It's like a parent who comes in hot with their kids and their kids just retreat into themselves and run and hide. God doesn't want that. God is trying always to draw us out, draw us into relationship. And so God just spreads God's self out over all of the cosmos, all of time and all the space so that at any point of contact with humanity, between humanity and God, the encounter, in the encounter, God appears as weakness, gentleness, as vulnerability, loving, patient, and kind, like a baby in a stable, like a really patient teacher who doesn't push, like a healer, a counselor, a friend who would die in our place. That's why cross is at the center of Christianity. It's this symbol of this deep reality that at any point of contact with God, God always seems weak. And only a people have learned to tell a story that way, only a people have cultivated a sensitivity to the divine will ever see it. And if we don't do that, we'll, we'll dismiss God completely. Jesus' whole mission was to wake up humanity to the reality of the reign and rule of God and that this kingdom of God is a kingdom of love and compassion and reconciliation. All we've been trying to do, Redemption Church, for the past 20 years is this, is to learn to see the world that God imagines and, and try to just become a little foretaste of that reality here together craziest part of it to me is that we really didn't plan any of this. All of our plans failed. Every good thing about redemption has been a total accident. Um, and maybe you're part of the accident. I think maybe you are. And I'm, I'm really so glad that you are. Somehow God has, um, this is another thing that I harvested from us that I think is right. Somehow God has happened to us, you know, and keeps happening. And I'm so glad to get to be a part of it. I'm really grateful to be your pastor. That is still the weirdest phrase I ever get to say, I'm a pastor. Um, me and Kristen, we're just so grateful to call redemption our home, to get to raise our family in this place. Grateful that you found your way to this community. And I pray that 20 years from now, we'll all be here together singing these songs praying these prayers, telling the story of the God who comes for us and doesn't fix everything, just is with us. And through all that brokenness, just transforms us and brings us alive. This God whose kingdom is a kingdom of love. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we're grateful to be part of Redemption Church, part of your people. And we are so grateful that we survived, and that, um, that you are our God, and we are your people. Pray for um, 
each and every person who's here among us and those members who are away right now, um, that we would keep telling the story about you, that you would help us tell it right, tell it over and against ourselves and honestly and truthfully, and that you would help us to continue to cultivate a sensitivity to you, our creator and sustainer. And that you would bind our hearts together as a church. Teach us how to love each other and the world around us for your sake. Amen. If you will stand, please. And we're going to receive communion today, but we're not going to receive communion in here. We're going to receive communion out at lunch in the yard. And um, so that's going to be our feast that, that will be the body and blood of Christ for us. Um, but before we do that, um, we'll just say the reason we do that is that on the night when Christ was betrayed, he took this loaf of bread and this cup that they were there for a meal, and he had everybody share in the same, same cup, the same piece of bread. And he said, this bread is like my body. This cup is like my blood, my life. And he said, I'm going away and you're gonna remain. You're gonna be my people. And every time you gather, I want you to take a piece of bread and a cup and receive it, share it together. And it's gonna be this reminder that you're feasting on me. You take my life into your life. You get made out of the stuff I'm made out of and then sent out into the world and let the world feast on you and taste and see the goodness of God. He said, every time you gather, do this. So that's why we do communion. And everyone's invited, everyone who calls on the name of Christ can join us in the feast, which we will have after we first sing a song. So um, I'm going to invite you not to come forward for communion, but let's um, just join in singing this song and then we'll...